0: A 29-year-old mother of two children was paralyzed and brain damaged in North Florida in a horrible car crash. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Behind the guy. The law can be a difficult trail to navigate. There are cases that change precedents and there are cases that change America. Some you know, and some you don't. Join Brian Cruz and Becky Granado of Cruz and Pascara as they dive into the most notorious cases in America and the ones you may not have heard of.
1: This is Behind the Gavel.
0: Welcome back to Behind the Gavel. I'm one of your hosts, Brian Cruz from Cruz and Pascara, PA. Becky Granato is here with me as as well. Today, we're going to tell our listeners about a case against a well-known car manufacturer, but because of confidentiality agreements, we can't identify the car manufacturer. This is a very, very interesting case involving a 29-year-old mother of two who was paralyzed and brain damaged, and ultimately, a decision had to be made about whether she should continue living or not.
2: Brian, this story begins like many mornings for women and guys. They're taking their kids to school. She's on the way to drop her young daughter off at a middle school. She had luckily already dropped her daughter off and was sitting on the side of the road or trying to pull out and a school bus was blocking her vision when there was another truck that ran through a median divide striking her car.
0: Yes, it was a very significant impact. In fact, I believe her car flipped, and uh, from that flipping, uh, she had to be extracted from the vehicle uh, by the fire rescue personnel who, of course, uh, put her on a backboard and then took her to the hospital. But how did she get injured? other than this was a severe car accident?
2: Well, after we were hired, we found out that her vehicle had one of the seatbelts that were failing. The seatbelt had on the buckle where the button was higher than the actual seatbelt, which caused inadvertent release in an accident. So it did not hold you into your car, basically.
0: Yeah, and besides that, uh, what was also unusual about this case uh, is that the airbags did not deploy either. And in this vehicle, uh, as in many vehicles, when there's a what they call delta V or the crash is eight miles an hour, it's a may fire situation. But when it's 15 miles per hour or greater, it's a must fire. Well, this impact was clearly so significant, it was way beyond the 15 miles per hour needed to trigger the uh, the airbags, but they did not deploy. So our investigation started there as well. So, so I'm sorry, guys.
1: So This is Phil. Hey, everybody. Camille, hey, Phil. Camille's hey, Phil. out saving the world again. So when you say the airbags are supposed to go off at 15 miles, so does it mean, like, even if you're, like, at a stop, is
0: this supposed to happen, or does it only happen if the car is in motion? Okay, good question. And what it means is if the other vehicle hits your vehicle, and it's greater than 15 miles per hour change in velocity, then the airbags must fire. So there's a pretty low threshold when you say 8 miles per hour about airbags. So, you, you know, they have to worry about them firing when it's not necessary, but also they have to worry about them not firing when it is necessary. And in this case, we determined that there was a defect involved with the airbags in question as well as the seatbelt buckle. And what happens if you're not kept restrained in your vehicle or the airbags don't work as well, then you're thrown around kind of like a laundry in a washing machine or in a dryer. You're just tossed around during the accident. And that's what happened to her.
2: One of the first things we look at because the defense would like to argue that how do we know she even had a seatbelt on? So question number one, did she have it on? You can go back, even if she had been taken out by the ambulance or the paramedics and they hit the button and released the seatbelt, you can go back and see on the seatbelt webbing, you can see marks, microscopic marks that showed the seatbelt was on her and stretched Mm. like a rubber band, stretched, and it didn't go back. So it leaves marks on the webbing. So we were first able to figure out that, yes, she did have on her seatbelt. Then how did it come loose? Well, part of that would have been in the rollover part. Her arm could have inadvertently hit that button that I told you was raised up over the belt. So she hits that button, it comes off. So the airbags don't deploy, the seat belt is defective, and she ends up with what I consider just horrific injuries. She is literally brain dead. But because she's 29 years old and young and strong and healthy, she hasn't died, so they cannot, you know, they take her to the hospital. She has no brain activity. However, she is still alive and living, breathing without the aid of a ventilator.
1: So, so when you consider brain dead, it just means there's just no connection up, up top. But everything else works. So you just said that you can still breathe on your own? Yeah. But does not that? So I don't know anything about okay. medical stuff. Well, so Brian, <laughs> help me out here. All right. How can, it, how can, if
0: my brain is not working, how can I breathe on my own? Well, okay, there's different parts of the brain. And uh, basically, the breathing occurs through the basal area or the back of your uh, head in that area, and it controls your breathing. Um, your frontal lobe, for example, is, is the front of your head, and it does your executive thinking and processing. Your temporal lobe is like where your temples are, and it does, in general terms, um, whether or not uh, your, your moods, your, your irritability, your temper, things like that. And so there's various part, portions of the brain. So the, the brain, the thinking portion of the brain, which is what we think of as the brain, that can be damaged and you're not functional, but yet you, your body is still functioning because it's on automatic pilot, mm is is the best way to explain it from the back of your brain and then you can continue living and so what happens if somebody's in an irreversible persistent vegetative state then the issue becomes is it better for them to stay in that condition in a bed forever or do you discontinue life support systems and things of that nature and this brings up the most interesting case that you know we sometimes think about the Terry Schiavo case and for those that don't remember that was a right to die legal case so without that case uh, ultimately uh, was decided in the United States where a woman was in a persistent vegetative state and the parents and the children wanted to let you know the mother go but her parents were Uh, deeply religious and did not want to let her go Mm. and discontinue a life support. This same issue came up in our case and it it became uh, an issue uh, because again, the same factors happened. Uh, The husband and the children who dearly loved their mother were willing to let her go and let her be at peace in their minds. Whereas her mother was not. Uh, So the injured mother of two her mother was not uh, willing to let that happen and was fighting to to not allow that to happen
2: so well, it was like shivo she would have some involuntary responses movement uh-huh. i so the mother being the mother myself i understand you don't want to let your child go but these are results of just the brain continuing to fire off it's not brain activity she wasn't alive and it it was very difficult for everybody involved terrible thing
1: wow so in in a a case like that and it has to go to a trial right um well uh, we
2: were able to prove that there was a long history of failure in these airbags in this particular car and this particular type of seatbelt. okay so they opted to eventually pay us in this case, and this also is another separate and distinct from the lawsuit. You have Miss Heron who has been under the care of, you know, a home in North Florida because obviously she couldn't go home, yeah. Yeah. and uh, she needed round the care clock, uh, round the clock care for her injuries. However, when we get a settlement like that, you have multiple claims. You have the claim of the husband who lost his wife, the children who lost their mother. And since she's alive, she has a claim as well for her medical, her injuries, her pain and suffering, everything that's going on to take care of her. So you have to take a settlement like that and craft it to, and you work with the defense usually, hopefully you can work with the defense to make sure that the children get a trust for their funds so that nobody has use of that nobody's the father's never accused of using that money for his benefit it's clearly there for the children and also watched over by the court the court appoints a guardian ad litem which is another attorney not related to you or not doing the case with us to make sure that we're protecting the minors' settlements. so for people out there who think Oh well, I'm just going to give money to the dad, and he's going to remarry and leave yeah. all these kids. That's not how it works. Yeah. Okay, it's not a good. It's country. not how it should work. It's not how it works. Well, we have things in place to try and help prevent that. So, and these are minor children, so they need care. They need what their mother missed. You know, they they have a claim, um, not just a monetary claim, but you know, pain and suffering. She's not going to be there for their weddings, their graduations from high school. Um, they're, they're, she's just not going to be there. Um, the husband also he has a claim now. Who doesn't have the claim is the parents.
0: Why? Well, because she's been married and is, has children, and is no longer um, they're no longer in a category of people that can make a recovery under that circumstance. Okay. You know? So, uh, you know, the other thing that's so interesting, and Becky was talking about, it, is you know. As lawyers, uh, we have fiduciary responsibilities to everyone involved. And so in particular, we always take it seriously when it involves minor children. And you're going to put money away in a trust or an annuity, and that, that way it can't be spent frivolously. So for people that are out there thinking, oh, if this money gets in, it's going to be gone, like Becky was saying, no, that's not going to happen because it's going to be controlled and it's going to be dispersed over time and it's going to be need based and things like that up until you know they get to an age of majority which is you know 18 to 21 and it can be set up any way but
2: and even after that even we structure after that, I mean, we structure funds that pay out at different ages oh. through annuities so oh, that they okay. don't so they don't turn 18 and go buy a corvette yeah, you know exactly. they they get a little bit to go to school and then most parents do it over a four year period for college and then again they do a payout at 25 at 30 35 i mean you can structure it in a lot of ways to, okay. to make sure they're taken care of
0: absolutely that's i mean that's what that that's actually one of the joys as an attorney and i think becky and i both get joy once we've beaten the money out of the manufacturer or the at fault party uh, one of the joys is setting up along with the trustee and the uh, the guardian ad litem, and the annuity person, you know, a plan, a plan for how's, how's this money going to shape this child's life going down the road. And, you know, you can't see everything, and you can't foresee everything, and we, and we rely on professionals to, you know, talk about that. But we, we've done so many of them ourselves now that, you know, we basically have some general ideas and, and suggest to the parents ahead of time uh, this is what you should do with the money, or you should consider this. And you know, it's our advice. And, and, you know, after attorney, it says attorney and counselor at law. That's part of the counseling, is in to help them use our experience of you know thirty five years of doing this stuff to to help the parents and deal with the, the minor children that are left. So that's important to us.
1: So a couple of couple of questions about um, the actual. Um, product liability yeah. stuff. So um, when you have an issue with like, with the seatbelt or uh, airbag, um, and there's been a recall, and let's say this person didn't get the recall or didn't know about the recall, and let's say that situation happens, what happens with that?
0: Well, a recall is a slam dunk. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> if you have the accident before the recall. And uh, because then they've admitted they know there's a problem with it. And so you've got proof that there was a defect. So uh, when we see that, uh, you know, that, that makes us excited for our client. Um, if it's issued and the client does not receive it, then, again, they didn't receive it, but it's an admission by the manufacturer that there is a problem. Okay. So, so it's yeah. – it's, you know, that's why they're so slow in getting those out.
2: Well, they're slow, and also people buy a used car. They may not be able to track. They don't have a listing of who the, you know, the secondary owner or the third owner of the vehicle is. However, and this is just something for the consumer to know. I, I learned this through all the years of working in, you know, personal injury and product liability. Go to NHTSA. National Highway Safety and Traffic website. They will have a list of all recalls that are out there for any vehicle sold in the United States. So I tell all my friends and my son's friends who are buying used cars now, why don't you check that out and make sure there were no recalls for any problems on those cars. It is a great service that we have.
0: Yeah, in fact, I think the um, it's NHTSA.gov. Mm-hmm. Nht
2: I believe believe Ralph Nader started that back in the day. I believe he did. You know, but uh, that goes back a long time. But it is a great tool if you're thinking about buying a used car. You can see if there was ever a recall and then you as the consumer can make your... Yeah, be proactive there. Be a little proactive, yes.
1: Okay, so uh, one more question with with that. The person who hit her, now did they have any... um, What's the word I'm looking for? Because you guys went after the Manufacture the car, but what about the responsibility of the person that hit them?
2: He had minimal insurance, which in Florida is your 10 policy, 10,000, 10. 10, 10, whatever, you know, not enough obviously to cover her injuries, which is what sends us on a path to look for everything else, um, look for other avenues. When you have a horrific injury case like this, you just don't stop with. He doesn't have insurance. You keep looking. You go to NHTSA. You try to find out if there's recalls. We, Brian, belongs to, um, very many um, groups where he can reach out through the country to other lawyers and find out if there've been any other cases similar to these.
1: Okay, like a cool network. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a cool it's network. A secret society. Secret you society. We'd let <laughs> you, we'll let you in. What's your handshake look like? <laughs> Wow. Well, that's actually very, very interesting because I I really want to know, because especially here in Florida, I mean, you guys you guys did one of my cases and you guys did our our Kevin's, our friends, too. So, I mean, especially with people who don't have insurance or who are underinsured, I hear that so, so many times. And, uh, you know, we do bring it up a lot. But um, when people say, hey, I I have to get insurance because it's required, you know, people just think. Oh, I'll get full coverage, but that doesn't full coverage doesn't actually mean full coverage. So so Brian, you want to actually uh, school everybody on what uh, is recommended to get?
0: Well, versus what's required. I understand. and what's required is, is pretty minimal really. but w- if you think about it this way, I think it's uh, easy to understand. Remember when you're buying insurance initially, you're buying it because you have to and then you're buying it in case you hit someone else. And there, you know, then you would have 10,000, let's say, as a minimal number, 10,000 in available coverage to cover bodily injuries to other people. Well, that's good. I mean, you have to do it. But what if somebody hits you? Who's going to take care of you? And the simple answer to that is get uninsured motorists, even if it's only $10,000, even if it's only $25,000 get uninsured motorist coverage because there are so many accidents here in the central Florida area area uh, where we have uh, people that are seriously injured and there's no insurance. The other adverse party who ran a stop sign ran a stoplight. They don't have any insurance coverage, but they're driving around and you may see them every once in a while in some of the beaters. Um, But sometimes people that uh, have nice cars and you would think they would have insurance, but they don't for one reason or the other. And so that way, if you buy uninsured motorist coverage, you're protecting yourself and your family when your family's with you in the car. It typically is relatively inexpensive compared to the, to the BI or bodily injury coverage that you're paying in case you hit someone else. So while you're at it, I would rather see somebody get 10 BI and 10 UM then you'll get twenty five thousand bi for the other guy and get zero um. Yeah, See? I
1: got you. Yeah.
2: See, the other thing we talked about in a previous uh, podcast was hiring of experts, and the reason you want to make sure you're covered when we go do a product liability case. These cases cost us anywhere from a hundred to two hundred to three hundred thousand dollars. So th- we're not going to do this case. If you're not seriously injured, what I'm trying to explain is that you must be severely injured or dead to to follow these uh, for us to pursue these product liability cases because they just are not cost effective for a smaller injury. So we're recommending that you are always covered by your uninsured motorist or underinsured motorist because those policies will cover those small
1: there was a there was a case that you guys did in one of the previous episodes. I think this is what you're referring to, where you had to actually recreate the scene, and correct. so you got to you had to hire a bunch of experts to, to to even pull that off.
2: That's correct. In this case alone, we would have had to have oh. an expert on the seatbelt, an expert on the airbag, an accident reconstructionist, not to mention an economic, um, a PhD in economics to extrapolate out the you know life care that she would need and what she lost. What the family lost from her working, from her household duties. So these things add up to hundreds of thousands of dollars. So most personal injury lawyers are not going to be able to pursue a case where the injuries are not devastating. Mm.
0: Yeah, I mean, it just it makes sense when you think about it. Um, if you know we take a case and it's only you know you've got an injuries of a um, let's say the case value is three hundred thousand dollars well, it doesn't make sense to spend $100,000, 150000 to try to get 300000 And so often we won't take those cases uh, but for that reason because they'll fight you just as hard on those cases. But instead, we recommend people have their uninsured motorist coverage. So to answer a question that I, I didn't answer really earlier, what do I recommend? I recommend you get as much uninsured motorist coverage as you can afford. At least at least get, you know, if you can, uh, you know, 50,000 BI, 50,000 UM. I, you know, I carry really high UM cuz if something happens to me, I'm the breadwinner in my family and I, you know, I had four four children and a wife and and still do and and so if something happens to me and I get brain damaged then I'm going to need every bit of my you know, multi-million dollar uninsured motorist coverage. You know,
1: now do you guys do you guys notice since you guys do with a ton of car accidents here, you are the i four lawyers. Do you notice that most cases are
0: uninsured motors, or or is it kind of balanced out? Well, we we get I would say one in three of our cases. There's no BI coverage. No, the other guy doesn't have it, so we have to end up kicking the case, or they have maybe a ten policy. Yeah. That, that's one in three of our cases we get coming in. Um, so.
2: Orlando is a haven for not having, and Florida itself, mm-hmm. people not driving with coverage. That's why it's so important. I know uninsured motorist coverage costs more than. But it'll cost you more. Yeah, than... <laughs> it'll cost you more in the long run. And I'm going to tell you that I speak from personal experience. My husband was struck on a bicycle. And our uninsured motorist, they left him. I, I still don't think they knew they hit him. But our uninsured motorist came in and paid a lot of the medical bills.
1: So, sorry to interrupt. That's all right. He was on a bike, not on a, a bike, car. How bike. does that How does that hold up? You're blowing my mind here. So if I have car insurance and I'm on a bicycle. Skate, or a pedestrian. Skateboard walking down the street. How?
0: <laughs> it's just that's what the law is. The, that's the good news.
2: The car struck you.
0: The a car struck you, you don't know who the car is, and it leaves the scene, then you have your uninsured motorist coverage. So you're a pedestrian out on Saturday walking down the sidewalk, and somebody clips you and knocks you down and breaks your leg, and you end up going to the hospital. You have your uninsured motorist coverage available. If you're on a bicycle,
2: Not only that, you have your PIP coverage. If it's a small case, let's say you hurt your elbow or something, but you need to go to the emergency room, your PIP coverage will cover 100%. 100%. Does does the
1: same rule apply if you're a passenger
0: in a car? Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Good question. Yes. Good
2: question. You can get your UM and the driver. Let's say that Brian's riding with me. Mm -hmm. I have UM. He has UM. Okay. Okay. He can go. He can make a claim on his own UM if that isn't enough to cover his medical bills, his pain and suffering, his problems, he can come after my UM.
1: Gotcha.
0: So, you know, I think most of us think about our families. And so when you're thinking about this and you've got a car full of like, you know, two or three kids and uh, you're driving and somebody hits your vehicle, you know, you first thing you do is worry about your kids first. Mm -hmm. And then you think about yourself. But Uh, and and that's what UM gives you some peace of mind. At least, you know, you're going to have some coverage available to pay medical bills and, uh, you know, other injuries. Um, and that's why it's, it's such a good thing to have. And and I don't think, uh, people understand that, uh, the insurance agents, you know, they love to sell you insurance, but they sometimes go, well, you can save money by not getting UM. Uh. And, uh, that's probably the worst thing you could do. Wow.
2: We could do any number of podcasts on people who did not have UM coverage. That's oh, yeah. tragic, too, when they tragic. come to us. Man,
1: yeah. they, we should. We, we should. Uh, we should do one where we talk about how many cases that they could have gotten. Correct. You know that. Have,
2: and, and it's devastating when you see someone who's severely hurt and they're in getting back surgery, they're getting neck surgery, and there's nothing, no coverage, or $10,000, which is nothing.
1: Yeah, that, that, won't even, that won't even cover one day in the hospital.
2: I'm going to tell you that if you get go to the emergency room in a fairly significant accident and you're just in the ER, they have to run CT scans, mm-hmm. MRIs x-ray. An, an IV bag is 800. IV bag. <laughs> By the time you leave, you've already spent your 10,000 in pip or close to it. Wow. One visit.
1: Okay. Hmm. Well yeah. So Well, so to wrap this episode up, I do want to ask uh so
0: she did she did pass away, right? She they, they
1: yes. did okay.
0: Ultimately, she did. I think she lived um about a year and a half, 2 years.
2: It, it was longer than her husband and children wanted.
1: Now when you guys do th- when you guys went for, you know, the, her, I guess, care of life plan or whatever, do you guys factor in that? Oh, she's, she only has maybe a couple of years left and then. Yes.
0: Yeah. yeah the life care planner would have done that and they would have used uh, certain tables and tried to, you know, evaluate her condition and and the mortality kind of table situation uh, is what they would use. And, to try to project out to make sure you don't go too far, but then also to make sure you don't go, you're not short.
1: Yeah.
2: We also, she, her, a lot of her bills were being play, paid by Medicaid at the time because those are astronomical bills in most families. Yeah. And won't have enough coverage. And people need to understand that health insurance does not pay for nursing care. Only Medicaid does. Really? Mm-hmm. Look at your health insurance policy. It's never going to pay for in home, I mean, in home or in service or in a facility, care. So when that happens, you almost eventually, almost inevitably, become Medicaid qualified. So during this case, when we settled it, we worked with Medicaid to present them with a um, an opinion on how long her life would be because they're paying the bills. Wow. So. There's when we establish the special needs trust, the money goes in that actually pays Medicaid back. And that's separate and distinct from the husband's claim and the children's claim. So there's a lot of work that goes into something like this.
1: Wow. So there was, there was a lot of work that went into that case. That was yeah. even just more than just the accident alone. Wow. So that I'm very impressed. Um, I'm very impressed. And I, and I hope the people listening are very impressed as well. So if they do have any questions, they can reach out
0: to you guys. Uh, Brian, remember the phone number? Four zero seven eight four one zero two zero zero 200 And the website. What is
2: our Cruise website? And Pescara. <laughs> com.
1: That's right. So I want to see you guys next week. It's going to be great. But I do want to ask you guys one question. Brian, pull the plug or no on you?
0: Or do you want stay, to stay stay around or no? Well, if I'm in a persistent vegetative state, which I won't know, but I guess the doctors would, pull the plug. Becky? Pull the plug. There's I think,
2: nothing good about I think I know it.
1: what will wake you up, though. We say the Gators won?
2: Yeah. Well, Brian and I, strangely enough, Brian and I agreed that if neither one of us respond to a football, it's over.
1: <laughs> wow. Thanks, guys, for tuning in. We'll catch you next week. Thank you for listening to Behind the Gavel. Join the
0: discussion on social media at Behind the Gavel. Again, that's Behind the Gavel, all one word. Tune in after the break for a preview of the next episode of Behind the Gavel. Hi, this is Brian Cruz of Cruising and Pascara. If you're in an automobile accident and you're injured, listen up. First, go to the hospital. Next, call your lawyer. Why? Because you need advice. Call Cruz and Pescara, your I-4 lawyer. 407 841 407-841-0200. Cruz and Pescara, your I-4 lawyer. Today we're going to talk about car seats and a two-year-old baby girl that was paralyzed because of a faulty car seat. This was a really fascinating case uh, that you and I worked on together and uh, involving just you know such an emotional case Uh, you have your child and the child's in a car seat and you think your child is safe and then you get involved in that accident and the child is uh, severely injured.